morning. My name is Anne Browdy. I'm the director of the Women's Studies and Religion program here at the Divinity School, and very happy to have the opportunity to welcome our, our incoming class. Um, and very happy to have a chance for the WSRP, as we're known, to be part of orientation um, under the rubric of ethical conversations, because we really are a program that was started as a result of student initiative and student concern um, that there was an issue of justice in the absence of women from the curriculum in the 1970s when the increasing number of women students who were coming here wondered why there were no women on the syllabus or the faculty. Um, and this program was the result of their efforts. Um, we continue to have a high degree of student involvement. We have student representatives on our search committee every year uh, who help guide us and keep our program. Um, we hope pu pushing the edges of scholarship of what inclusion means and what is possible and what is the really the next place that we need to learn, in the, that we need to move in terms of diversifying our curriculum. Um, we have a wonderful group of scholars this year. We have five new scholars every year. Every year we conduct an international search um, and bring five people to the school to work on a book-length project that will expand what we know about women and religion and to teach a course um, about that book project. So we're really happy to have the chance to introduce you to this program we're a small program, but we have an important role in the history and identity of the school. And we hope many of you will have the chance to engage the visiting scholars. The hardest part of this is I'm gonna introduce five amazing people, and you're one in absentia, and you're only gonna be able to take maybe one or two of their courses. Um, and then next year, there's gonna be a new candy store of Women's Studies and Religion Research Associates on five new projects um, that we can't, we don't even know yet what those might be. So um, stay tuned. Um, the first thing I need to announce in introducing this year's group is that we were very sad to lose one of our previously um, announced research associates. And you, so on the information you received, you probably read about Fulata Moyo from Malawi, who has been unable to join us this year in a last minute um, change that we were really, really sad about. However, we're thrilled that within the last about 18 hours, um, we have been able to bring on board one of the alternates that the faculty approved last year um, and I won't tell you her name yet because it, not everything is signed, but I will tell you something about her work. Um, her field is transnational religious encounters, and her research project is on Protestant missions in the Philippines during the period between the Spanish-American War at the close of the 19th century um, up until the World War II period. Um, her project analyzes how American women and Filipinas negotiated the tensions and ties between, between evangelism and imperialism 
in the context of diverse religious faiths and gender ideologies. And she'll be teaching a course spring term on women and Christian missions in world history. So for those of you who are interested in Protestant missions, uh, who are interested in transnational dynamics, who are interested, uh, who want to work with somebody who is um, Spanish speaking, um, this, you, there will be an opportunity that we didn't previously anticipate. Um, but right now, I am uh, really thrilled to introduce the group who I met for the first time yesterday, but already feel very um, at home with. I'm going to introduce them very briefly, and then um, we'll have some discussion, and maybe, depending on the clock, uh, some time for questions from, uh, from you to the incoming research associates. So um, they arrived here the same time you did, so they're just as nervous as you are. Um, uh, but um, uh, it's really great to be able to welcome them as well as, as welcoming you today. Um, uh, first, um, they're going to speak in alphabetical order um, uh, from right to left. So uh, first, I'm very happy to introduce Kimberly Blockett who is an associate professor of English at um, the State University of Pennsylvania from the Brandywine campus. Um, her project, Race, Religion, and Rebellion, Recovering the Antebellum Writing and Itinerant Ministry of Zilpha Elow, uh, focuses on a really remarkable document, or rather on its author, um, one of the rare uh, memoirs of a 19th century African-American woman evangelist. Um, it's a book that uh, has been widely taught and widely used since it was reprinted. It, was it in the 70s or 80s? It was first that was reprinted. reprinted in the 80s. The, in the 80s. Um, I've been teaching it since that time, so for about 30 years, knowing virtually nothing about its author. Um, and that, I'm really uh, thrilled, will be changing dramatically. Maybe by the time I teach that book, spring term, I will be a much better informed instructor, as will the rest of the academy, who depends on that volume. Um, to Kimberly's left, your right, whatever, um, uh, is uh, Avital Davidovich Eshet, who um, most recently taught at Bar Ilan University. Um, and is a research fellow for the last 10 years at the Shalom Hartman Institute in uh, Jerusalem. Um, her project, Enclosed Gardens Revealed, the Concept of Virginity in Medieval Jewish Culture, um, will really appre uh, appeal to textual scholars. I think anybody who wants to really dig into a text, um, as well as um, uh, anybody who is as mystified as I am why this topic has not been addressed before. Um, virginity is such a critical category in um, Jewish law as well as across the religious spectrum. Um, to, uh, next to Avital is uh, Fareel Khalifa, who um, has taught at a number of universities uh, on the West Bank, which is her home and the site of her research. Um, uh, Fariel did her doctorate in sociology at the University of Manchester in England uh, after a master's degree at the University 
of Chicago. And she is our first research associate from the West Bank, so we really want to extend a special welcome uh, to Ferriel. We're always, um, Tracy, who I should introduce to all of you because uh, she keeps everything working at the Women's Studies and Religion Program, which is across the street next to the Dean's house in the Carriage House. So anytime you're looking for one of us, we're over there and ask Tracy, she knows everything. Um, and she knows that I get really excited when we have a new uh, an application from a country that we haven't had before or that we haven't been able to appoint in before. So we're really delighted about this. Um, finally, I'm sure Asla Zengen is used to always being last in alphabetical <laughs> order. Um, she is coming to us um, from Brandeis University. She did her doctorate at the University of Toronto. And her research project is entitled Sovereigns of Sex, the State, Islam, Family, and Transgender Embodiment in Contemporary Turkey, which is such a live topic um, here at the school and for so many people. Um, so without further ado, um, I'm going to pose some somewhat informal questions to our panelists and um, see what we can learn about them and their projects. Um, so let me start with Kimberly. Um, uh, you've been working on this project for a long time, um, maybe 15 years, if I've read your CV correctly. Um, uh, and I should say that all of the questions I'm going to ask were really um, inspired by kind of a joke that Avital made yesterday when I said, you know, I want you to give sense, people a sense of what your passions are, why you study this, what's really important about it. And she said, um, oh, that's, it's like being asked why I study this is like going to a psychiatrist. It, the answer changes um, depending on what's, where I am in life and what's upsetting me and what's giving me joy. And so anyway, we're going to uh, take a little um, trip. So I wondered about your relationship with Zilpha Elau, who, which has been going on for 15 years, and uh, what it's like to focus on a single historical figure for that much of your life, um, and how your relationship has changed, how your view of Zilpha Elau has changed over the years. Um, okay, um, yeah, it, it, it is really apt that I think a lot of the topics that we choose as scholars uh, have a lot to do with our own psyches. Um, so <laughs> uh, I became interested in her uh, probably because um, I chose, I didn't choose her, she, I rejected her, right? So I was working on my dissertation and my director said, you need to include her. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not interested in this old historical crap that you do. Um, <laughs> so I will not. Um, so I continued to reject her. And these random people would stalk me in the halls who were in my director's class and say, I hear you're working on black women and travel and subjectivity and values and ethics. And you really should include uh, Zelpha Elon. <coughs> So at some point I included her and by the time I finished the dissertation, um, which is a journey in and of itself, um, I was completely enraptured by this woman who kept doing things and going places that she wasn't supposed to. So, uh, which was my interest in black women in journey in the first place. Uh, I'm interested in uh, bodies that uh, don't fit 
um, a larger narrative, right? And so what's changed over the years is that the more that I, bec uh, that I have grown as a scholar and come to understand larger national and international narratives, the more I've come to understand that um, it wasn't just about this particular woman that I was interested in. It was really about the larger narratives that she was engaging uh, that really interests me. And the way that she shaped those narratives and the way that those narratives shaped her and her journey. Um, and, and that's what I was interested in. So I originally thought, oh, I'm just interested in her because she seems crazy, right? She, she was a black woman traveling around by herself in the 1820s preaching. She wasn't supposed to be preaching. She was going into the slave stage. She obviously wasn't supposed to be doing that and, and saying things that she shouldn't have been doing. And I thought, this is insane. Who is this woman? I want to know more about her. Um, and as it turns out, I really wanted to know more about the larger socio-historical moment. I wanted to know how these things were relating to each other, uh, you know, women taking leadership in the church. The black church movement was coming to arise, um, and of course the Second Great Awakening. So all those things were coming to a head at the same moment. And the more I grew as a scholar, the more I began to understand that by looking at a particular person and that life, you can also come to understand how these larger spaces and places um, have have something. It all it all responds to each other. I hope that made some kind of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you one more question. If you, if you, uh, and I have to say as an aside that this director who kept saying you have to look at Zilpha Elo was an advisor to our program, uh, the sainted Nellie McKay, one of the great scholars of African American women's literature. Um, so. Yeah, Go Nellie, she got you. <laughs> she so got when, me. When your advisor tells you you have to look at those old folks, um, think of this story. Um, uh, but, but I know that people do want to connect that kind of work with our concerns today. Um, what would Zilpha Elow think of the world that we live in and the concerns that we bring uh, to the table in our in educational and social settings today? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, wow, that's a question. Um, she, she was very values driven mm -hmm. um, and um, very much um, an isolationist in some ways. Um, so, I, I think she she would be very focused on, she was always about sort of returning to uh, the text, right? For her, the text was the, the Christian scripture um, and about um, following sort of one's inner compass, mm -hmm. right? So this is what she, this is, how she sort of kept moving along even though everyone was telling her you're not supposed to be doing A, B, and C, right? And so she continued to say, um, it doesn't really matter. Um, I'm taking the middleman out. Um, here's, here's my value, here's my belief system. And it doesn't matter what all of these people, 
how they interpret this belief system. It really is about me in this text. Mm -hmm. So I think given the moment we're in right now, um, she'd have probably have a lot to say about all of these voices, all of these people who are interpreting various things in many different ways mm -hmm. and probably advocating um, there's an inner compass and people need to come back to their values. Thank you. Um, well, she took the text seriously, and um, that is a perfect segue to Avital's work. Um, your work focuses on virginity in medieval Judaism, and I know that you have placed this topic in a larger comparative framework. Um, so I was wondering if you would be willing to speculate on whether virginity is a universal or nearly universal religious category. Um, do all the religions you've looked at ritualize virginity uh, and transitions from virginity? Um, what, how, how should we be thinking about this? I try to be very cautious answering this question because it's, it's much like asking about uh, if gender inequalities is something universal mm -hmm. or if uh, women's subordination is universal. Uh, so someone will, can always come up with some tribe somewhere that, uh, or some religion at some time, at some point in history that didn't have that as a phenomena. But I think I can say fairly um, responsibly that at least in the three big monotheistic religions, and not only in them, but also in classical uh, religions like uh, the Greeks and the Romans, as far as we know, uh, virginity stood at the center, um, of, or if not in the center, was at least a very important um, issue as well as a, a religious value. Uh, saying that, we must always take to consideration that the way that each of these religions, the way it shaped virginity, the, the values it added to it, you know, the things that were thrown into that basket that virginity is, are very much different. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think it's such a great um, concept if to take, you know, to take off um, John Scott's remark about how gender is such a um, useful category in the study of history. So I, I would paraphrase and said that virginity is definitely um, a very good uh, analytical category to study religions. And not only religions by themselves, not only the theology, but the religious culture in a wider way, because that becomes a sort of a focal point that reflects on much wider relationships, not only between men and women, but between women and the divine, and between men and women and the divine, between body and soul. So I think it's it's a very good semiotic key. Mm -hmm. Could you give us an example? Um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's many uh, examples. Uh, I would just say, uh, I will give an example that will point to the diversity and, uh, and the, the things that are sort of similar and different. Um, and maybe that will also address the, the, the little remark you were saying about how come nobody studied that before uh, in Jewish studies, because we tend to sometimes um, take as presupposed 
uh, what we already know. So I think the reason that uh, virginity wasn't studied as a important uh, category in Jewish studies was not only because of uh, that past generation uh, scholars who were mainly men didn't have, you know, like the feminist agendas. That, that is also a good reason, but that is not the major reason. I think the major reason is the fact that they accepted the sort of Western uh, uh, concept of virginity, which is basically a Christian concept mm -hmm. of virginity in which virginity means eternal virginity or the intactness of the body. And if you take that and look at Judaism, you wouldn't find it there because it's just not there. It's not important in Judaism. But that does not mean that Judaism doesn't have its own essential concept of virginity that is very much different. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, um, I would take the sort of the virgin Mary or the virgin nun and we'll put an, um, on the other side the virgin bride, which is a totally different, mm -hmm. um, totally different um, point of departure when you're looking on virginity. If you look at virginity as a constant state in one religion or in Judaism, where you look at the moment of losing virginity, this moment of this transformative sort of moment as the most important mm -hmm. thing. So that changes uh, the angle very much. And I must have a small remark about recommendations of uh, instructors, PhD sure. instructors. So you'll have the other angle. When I was starting my PhD, I went to my instructor and asked him, and he told me he thinks it's a very bad idea, that there's nothing on it. And I should go and talk to other people that understand more uh, than him. And I did. I went to Jerusalem to this really important professor. And he told me, if I was your instructor, I wouldn't sleep at night. That would be the thinnest. PhD ever written, <laughs> and every once in a while I met him in these conferences, and he would say, he would look at me and say, "Are you still doing that? It's never, you're never going to end your PhD. Just imagine, you know, a, a young student there, and these professors are telling you this is a really bad idea. So always have these two angles. If someone tells you that something is a really bad idea, go for it." <laughs> And your advisors will have lots of stories along these, uh, <laughs> these lines. Um, Fariel, let me turn to you next. Um, you study Muslim women's movements of piety in your own community in the West Bank. Um, and these are, are very recent movements that have emerged during your own lifetime. Can you tell us how you first became aware of these movements and what it was like to watch a new form of women's religiosity emerging as you were growing up. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, first, uh, let me start uh, by saying that uh, I grew up in the West Bank, and you know, uh, for you, most of you perhaps know or don't know, the West Bank is uh, part of Palestine um, uh, that remained after 1948, and in it was occupied in 1967. <laughs> by Israel in 1994. It was declared part of the Oslo Agreement, and uh, it is part where uh, the supposed Palestinian state uh, supposed to be founded as, you know, to, as, a, as a way to resolve the conflict between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis. So um, I grew up in the West Bank uh, during the 1970s um, in schools and etc. 
Um, the, the way I was raised up uh, as a child and also as a teenager, I was somehow liberal, you know, which means uh, this does not, in schools or at home or outside, uh, you wouldn't feel that people were very sensitive about their uh, religious identity, about being Muslims. Which does not mean that people were not practitioners of Islam. I mean, Islam is part of the culture. People would pray, would read the Quran, would fast in Ramadan and celebrate the feast, etc. But the, the emphasis on Islamic identity and Islamic education was not there. And, uh, and you, you, can see, you can feel that in, uh, in everyday life, like uh, people dress um, uh, in non-Islamic way. You barely see people veiled. Um, you barely feel, uh, hear somebody listening to the Quran uh, in constant places. And uh, in, the 80, in the 1980s, I started observing some form of religiosity, which was like women would go to mosques to, to learn the Quran and uh, learn the hadith uh, or Prophet Muhammad sayings, etc. But this was most observable to me. This was most visible uh, during the 1990s, the late 1990s. You could feel uh, that more women are getting more religious. They would veil, they would put on the full Islamic dress. Um, they take the initiative uh, to, uh, they commit to long-term studying of the text uh, of the Quran and the Hadith and uh, uh, and learning about religion itself. Uh, so uh, this was my puzzle. I couldn't understand where does this come from? How do these women turn to this kind of activity? And uh, why do they like it? Um, um, being somehow different, you know, I, I look at Islam as part of my identity, part of my make cultural, so social makeup, but not basically. I, I'm by nature like that, you know, it's just, um, so religion is part, not everything. So that was my puzzle, that was my conundrum for my PhD, and I started learning, and, um, and hence I learned uh, two things. I mean, I can summarize two things. Uh, first, uh, that women have uh, some kind of fascination, I'm sorry. New research sorry, information. Just... <laughs> <laughs> What's that? It's an informant. It's just declaring. It's declaring that this is happening again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know it's time. It's yeah. time for your panel. Yes. <laughs> Can everybody else turn off their cell phones, please? Huh? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Can't find it. Just it'll stop. Yeah, it's okay. Let me sequester that. Yeah, I can just take this away. Yeah. And it will return now. This is. I set my alarm every like an hour or so. Sometimes when I work, this is how it comes. <laughs> so I'm sorry if it will come back again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Welcome back again. So okay. Um, so let me pick up where I stopped. So that was my PhD project, is to figure out the story behind those visibilities. Where did this woman come from? Why do they embark on such kind of activism? And I learned, as I said, I can summarize two main things, that women are fascinated somehow. 
by this kind of learning that women from all ages and also social and class background are also interested in it. And so, um, um, so it's not only poor women or rich women or so it's all kind, like I would say, all kind of social uh, categories of women. Um, so that was the first thing. The second part is I learned that there was um, um, kind of uh, institutional base for this kind of activism. Uh, it was like uh, the Ministry of Religious Affairs in the West Bank, related to the Ministry of Religious Affairs in Jordan. They initiated a kind of uh, uh, teaching program of the Quran, and they basically provide charity, but they also uh, encourage those who benefit from charities, etc., to learn the Quran and uh, um, start uh, um, uh, studying the Hadith, etc. So that this part. And then I started reading theory, and I learned from the social movement theory that this kind of woman activism, those piety groups and networks, are conceptualized as um, uh, Islamist or as like the, uh, the base, the mass base for the Islamic political movements. That the Islamic political movements, what, uh, I don't know if you know the term Islamist, those uh, Islamic groups who uh, have political projects based on Islam, whom we call Islamists, social, uh, uh, um, social science theory of social movement, they consider those women group as social base for those Islamic politically active uh, movements. But what I have found is that uh, through ethnographic interviewing, and I took the life history method, at one point, women were turning to piety. Why did they choose and how did they choose? What conflicts, what tensions were behind their turning to piety? I learned, um, I concluded, and I argued that um, piety, Islamic piety in that sense, was um, gender empowerment means. It was a way uh, to go out, you know, to move from the very constraints, perhaps, of patriarchy itself, like if, uh, uh, if the family would not like the woman to go out and uh, get a degree, then going to the mosque and learning and, and having the role of a preacher, uh, she becomes herself a teacher in some sense. So it's kind uh, of alternative to what is available. So it's kind of gaining more social space, more legitimacy in the, um, in the around. And um, this way, I. In this, in this sense, I uh, interpret and uh, see why many women are interested in mm -hmm. such kind of activism um, and in get, getting uh, to learn or, you know, to get engaged in such kind of, excuse me, biety groups and networks. So, yeah. Thank that's, you. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Um, let me make a transition with moving to Asla. Because um, in a few minutes, I want to ask everybody to reflect on their sources and methods. But I thought w this might be a good way to start out um, our conversation, um, because we're all fascinated by your work on uh, transgender funerals and funeral practices in Turkey and how that is negotiated by religious authorities and participants. Um, but it does seem to me to be a sensitive topic 
um, to engage as a researcher. So I wondered how you navigated that. Um, how, how do you bring this topic up with potential sources of information? And how did you gather information? What were your sources? And how did you engage yeah. uh, in conversation about this? Um, so the dead, transgender deaths and funerals are part of my larger book manuscript. And the general book manuscript is just talking about the religious uh, institutional and social regulation of gender non-conforming and transgender lives and bodies in Turkey. Uh, I'm looking at different kinds of sovereign claims on the definition of the body, the sex and the gender of the body by the family, by the religious authorities, by the state, and LGBTQ community itself. Um, so the, the, the same discourse, the same practices that try to disambiguate certain ambiguous definitions of gender and sex uh, are also the, say, the, the conditions for transgender people's mm -hmm. uh, creative agencies, how they uh, respond to these forms of sovereign claims and forms of violence in their own community and organize their activism and try to just mobilize their own set of uh, definitions and practices. Um, and funerals is the fertile site to actually look at the contestation of the sovereign claims. Um, I was, during my ethnographic research, I'm an anthropologist, so I do ethnography. Uh, I did 22 months of field work across different sites, uh, including an LGBTQ organization, trans people's homes and their neighborhoods, their coffees, coffee shops, their parties, funerals. Um, it's just the everyday life. Whatever makes a community, how they live, it's my method doing ethnographic research. But at the same time, I did collect some official documents, archival documents, on the regulation of gender reconforming processes, the category of transsexuality, sex work, as many <coughs> sorry, uh, transgender women uh, do sex work uh, in, in Istanbul. Uh, so I brought all those resources together to build up my own analytical framework. So the f going back to the funeral stories, uh, during my field work, <clears throat> one of my friends from the trans community, um, she died, but mm -hmm. she hadn't completed her uh, gender reconfirmation process, which would give her eventually a pink ID in Turkey. So women are given pink IDs and men are given blue IDs in Turkey by the state. So for transgender people, it becomes a whole official institutional struggle to make the transition at the official level. Like there are so many transitions going on in the everyday life, but when you present yourself to an officer and showing this, you know, mismatching color of your ID, it causes lots of problems. You just actually don't get the recognition from the officer. So in this particular um, uh, incident, uh, my friend Sibal died without receiving her pink ID. So she had blue ID because she hadn't completed the whole surgical process. That's the condition, one of the requirements. And um, it opened up a whole site for contestation. The, some imams didn't want to uh, do the ritual or funerals, didn't want to bury the body, her body, and they said they would do it only as recognizing her as a man according to this Islamic interpretation of the body because of the funerals, and that is strictly gendered. There are different practices for women, uh, dead bodies, female dead bodies, and there are different practices for the deceased as male. Um, but then, 
it's not only, it, it is not a homogenous, uniform understanding of Islam. Like people, different imams who develop more connections with the community who are more um, exposed to different sorts of living styles had different interpretations, how religious, religious uh, doctrines get interpreted uh, based on their practical lives and based on their engagements with the community just gives us a different uh, angle to talk about religion, how Islam relates to gender embodiment. Um, so we could be able to find another imam who would do the ritual, uh, funeral ritual, as Sibel would like to have done. And, uh, but at the same time, during the funeral process, uh, during the funeral ceremony, um, the family also intervened, because family is also having so much say on the definition of the body. The kinship, familial relationships are a big part of the uh, claims, sovereign claims on the body, as opposed to the Western definitions of unified individual body. We just, you know, we are thinking about the body in a much more like familial relational, kinship relational aspect. Um, and um, they didn't want to, for example, uh, want to do the funeral. And uh, they said, okay, the, the body should be just, you know, sent to some cemetery for the anonymous. Uh, and the body was abandoned uh, by her family. And, um, and the official discourse, the state discourse, prioritizes the family account. Who is going to decide on the funeral? While the LGBT community is just organizing big time, trying to do their own ritual uh, and bury, the, uh, bury Sibel's body. So this brought so many things together, not only religion in itself, but how religious flame frameworks, uh, familial kinship frameworks, gender, sex regimes, and the state go together uh, and shape what it means to be a gender non-conforming person, transgender person in Turkey, and uh, how it gets regulated through that and life. This is just one particular angle. Um, yeah, and of course it was, there were challenges as I was doing this uh, research. First of all, I'm a cis woman, and I had to prove myself as a good ally uh, because of the tensions between feminist movements and just, you know, cisgender women and uh, trans uh, women in general and trans men in general in Turkey. Um, so it takes a lot of time to establish rapport and just gain some trust. And you should, ethnography gives you this kind of, you know, space to actually really connect with people, really connect with the community. and just you know, help as, as much as you can uh, with whatever they demand. Um, so that was a challenge. The other challenge, when I was looking at the regulation of uh, transgender lives, bodies, and gender non-conforming lives and bodies, uh, the police is a really central actor in shaping mm -hmm. uh, different forms of violence in everyday life on the street, as many people are doing sex work. Um, I really wanted to also talk to the police officers, but it was a fine line. I wouldn't be able to also do that uh, because of my distrust in the police also. Um, but also I wanted to hear from their side as well. As a good researcher, you have to be just you know, getting rid of your biases and um, collect all this information. But all the doors were shut down. Uh, because I'm doing work on sex work, because I'm doing work on uh, sex, gender, transgression from the perspective of the society. So 
I wasn't taken as a proper woman. Uh, and what it means to do this kind of research as a young woman in Turkey is also something to do with the existing uh, hegemonic uh, values about gender, sexuality, chastity, uh, and how it shapes your research and the way you access to certain kinds of you know, sites. Um, yeah, that, that were the most important challenges I faced uh, during my fieldwork. Thank you. That's really fascinating. I wish I could ask everybody lots more questions, but uh, we only have a brief time left. So what should I do here? Do you guys want to ask questions, or shall I keep going? Are there burning questions out there? There's a question, I guess. Did, uh, yes, sir. I have a question. I have a question for Ferio. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you mentioned <coughs> that social scientists largely view uh, women's mo movements or piety in these communities as being part of like a political movement or the base for Islamist political movements. And then you came to your conclusion. Um, do you view those two conclusions to be contradictory? Um, or do you view women's agency that they gain from being more pious uh, be like a personal benefit, but still fits within the larger conception of it being part of the Islamist movement. Yeah. Yeah, I thank you for the question. I think this is one of the things I've been thinking about, arguing that uh, um, uh, those um, uh, women uh, groups and uh, networks are not, uh, our gender empower empowerment means, does not mean that they were not at one certain point were used by, for example, Islamic group to, to gain support, and uh, especially when uh, there is elections, etc. But I think if you look at it in a time spectrum, um, it is uh, sometimes they gain independence. Like in the West Bank, the women, there are some groups and networks who are completely independent from Islamic political groups and they don't like their women to be politically active. And uh, I, you can term them as apolitical. Of course, you can think about what does this mean, but uh, they don't want them to be uh, politically active. So um, in, in some, uh, at, uh, some groups, they don't view themselves as belonging to uh, Islamic uh, parties. In some, with some other groups and in, with some, with, in some other moments also, those can be used uh, by political parties. Um, uh, but um, in general, um, I find this is, the, uh, the, this is like, there is a tension between claiming that they are not uh, um, means for political uh, groups and gender empowerment, empowerment means. But if you look at it in, uh, within a time frame um, and look at the, the spectrum and the diversity of those religious groups and the networks, um, you can understand that um, um, many of them do not regard themselves as politically active, and therefore we, we, they have their own space, I would say. And I, in fact, claim in, uh, in the West Bank that some of those groups make their own social field in, in, uh, in Pierre Bordeaux terms. 
they make up their own social feeds, which is independent from Islamic parties. And uh, they compete with them sometimes. Um, just to add one little thing, um, uh, if I want to put uh, those, uh, this kind of, Islam, of uh, woman Islamic activism compared to the activism of Palestinian women in a historical perspective, um, they were preceded, you know, this kind of activism I'm talking about um, became uh, during the 1970s and 80s, 90s, of course, continued until now. But before that, there was like in, during the 1930s and 40s, there were the upper middle class women uh, who were like working in charity. And then during the 1970s and um, 80s, also 90s, there were also politically active Islamic or Islamist women, and also politically active liberal women. So those, uh, this kind of a, a religious um, groups, they come somewhere between those two uh, ends, between upper middle class women, charity work, and um, other politically active women, either in the Islamist side or in the national or what we call liberal side. So just to give you an idea that what I have studied is those women who uh, whom I classified in general as lying in between those two ends. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I think if there's no question out there, I oh, there is a question, sir. Hi, Dr. Khalifa. Um, question: Were you able to find a relationship between increased piety um, amongst Palestinian women and? Uh, anything that was going on in the West Bank at that time with respect to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, could that have also been something that spurred um, that, that movement? Um, yes, I think um, there are, it's all, I, I can, honestly, I can, from the woman I interviewed and I've seen, you can speak about all levels of power uh, including um, the family and the Israeli occupation. <laughs> so I, what I say, I've seen women, for example, um, going back to religion because they have lost a brother or because their husband is, is uh, imprisoned. And um, there is a woman who studied that, it's called Islah Jad. Uh, she studied those women, uh, wives of prisoners and how um, uh, Islamic uh, morality was a way to cope, to cope with the pressures, with the uh, absence of husbands, mm -hmm. um, and having to raise up children. I personally also interviewed women who, whose sons were uh, under danger and threat of death. And so they refrain, they uh, go back to the Quran as a resource to feel secure, to empower themselves. And they, they, so they believe that if they practice reading the Quran and if they are good believers, God would protect their sons. So I have it, uh, um, I have those examples I, where I where, through my interviews, I've seen that. And l let me say, I don't want to give long answers, but let me say, the Israeli occupation and the fact that the West Bank was uh, disconnected from the Arab world for some mm -hmm. time, I believe, in, uh, also from my field work, I had the feeling that it played a role in some Islamic Muslim women, those activists, I, Muslim activists. They regard themselves, as, I would feel, uh, because they are disconnected 
from the Arab world. So they see themselves as belonging to what I can call imagined Muslim community. Mm -hmm. uh, like it's either in Cairo or in um, some other places in the Arab world. Mm -hmm. So I think the incubation uh, has its own, in, in addition to the institutional uh, separation from the other, from the Arab world, and the only institutional continuity after 1967 was through the religious, uh, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, which was run by Jordan. It has this, um, it encouraged this woman to get together, but there is something else going. It's about um, feeling perhaps locked, um, a feeling that they are perhaps isolated. So uh, it is something I'm still thinking through actually, uh, but yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take the chair's prerogative and throw out one last question for the whole group. Um, and I hope you can give very brief um, answers because everybody wants lunch. Um, uh, and the dean is waiting for us. But I would love to hear you reflect in just a few sentences on the relationship between your methods and sources and your ethical concerns. Um, uh, where's the intersection there, is there one, or are these just two completely separate kind of skill sets and sets of concern that you bring to your, your scholarship? You wanna, okay. you wanna start us off? Um, uh, I think for me, uh, two sets. Uh, one, because I started out um, as a, um, I'm an English professor, so I, I, I can't start, came to the work uh, doing literary analysis, and then it progressed, and I'm now more of a historian than a literature professor. Um, so the first part, uh, making sure that I wasn't um, uh, reading a text that was, was created, an autobiographical text created in 1846, uh, that I wasn't putting a, a 21st century uh, gloss on it, right? So that was the first real ethical concern um, that I, I, I'm not putting a postmodern spin on and <laughs> uh, trying to to create a feminist, right? That wasn't there. <laughs> um, she she would be rolling over in her grave if I called her a feminist. Um, so that's number one. Uh, and then and then as 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 from as a, from a historical perspective. Um, uh, now that I am um, deep into the archives and, and have been for more years than I care to admit, um, it is being careful to make sure that I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm recovering and not discovering, right? So um, as we find out more and more about uh, places and people, um, to, to be sure that, that we're not uh, recommitting the sins of the past uh, and, and, and acting as if um, we are uh, creating knowledge, right? When we're not, we're recovering things and still piecing together pieces of a puzzle and it's still an interpretive act, mm -hmm. right? So anything that I find out and any knowledge that I, um, put out there is still an interpretive act. Um, so those are the kinds of, of things that I try to, to keep in the forefront of my own mind and also to, to put at the forefront of the scholarship that I, that I publish. Thank you. 
um, Avital? Yeah, ma many of the things that Kim just said, I will just take as a preface to what I want to say, not to, to, to say the same things again. Uh, in, in the particular case of my study, since the, there's, there's the political answer and the personal answer, because the political answer is that these texts, the texts that I'm dealing with, which are mostly uh, rabbinical texts of a halachic writing, which is, uh, uh, and also uh, interpretations and exegesis, which were all written by men for men. And learned and studies for hundreds of hundreds of years by men. So it's not a surprise that virginity was studies. You know, even in nowadays yeshivas, uh, every t everyone who started the tractate of Tubot will see a virgin is getting married. That's how it starts, and it goes there like that for three chapters. But there's no scholarly work on it because it's just it's just an object there that needs to be studied. So me reading that as, and now I go to the personal, as a secular woman who comes to this text, and the first work I had to do is to gain access to that through, it's like studying a new language. I just had to study it. I didn't have any background, not in school, not in the academic uh, sort of, um, path that I walked through and I just had to study with people to know how to learn these texts, how to read them, and not to impose my sort of feminist politics on them, but to be an historian and a responsible one and to see what the text actually says. Uh, so, so this is sort of the, the tension. And the other thing is the complex, oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> I always talk with my hands, Israeli always does. Um, so. The other thing is the complexity of the picture because these are just fractures. Uh, Judaism, unlike Christianity, doesn't have, you know, every church father that respects himself have a De Virginitate, has his book on virginity. Uh, in Judaism, it doesn't work like that. Uh, they don't have, it, it's not, I will say cautiously again, that it's not a, a religious of theology, it's more of a religious of anthropology. Judaism, it's what, mostly what Jewish people does in certain places and certain times. So in order to have a sense of a concept that is, that is not something that is practical, you have to sort of go into everything that you can put your hand on. That will be rituals, that will be halachic texts, that will be exegesis, uh, whatever, even fiction. Every text that has something to do with female body, female sexuality, and especially that talks about this moment of transformation between being a virgin and being a non-virgin is of interest to me. So I have to go in many different directions. Thank you. Oh. About my message, you mean? <laughs> I just, uh, I've, uh, I think I used, uh, in my method, I would say just something briefly. I, it was a great exercise to me during my PhD um, to combine what I call the oral history method and the uh, um, ethnographic observation. And at one point, I thought, I thought maybe how, how will those fit together? And uh, there were painful moments when I felt uh, I cannot combine them, can I combine them? And then at the end, I, I ended up doing the same because part of my questions were to know about this movement and how they emerged, what time. Uh, so I used 
interviews to know about this recent history. It was not written the first time studied. And then on, uh, in addition to that, I practiced, uh, <coughs> I did ethnographic observation, <coughs> excuse me, of women uh, uh, groups and uh, their practice of Quran recitation, their practice of uh, interpreting the Quran, their practice of prayer, etc. So, so that's what basically I did for my project. Thank you, and we'll give the last word to okay. Asla. Uh, so I have ethical as well as political concern in the phase of both like, first, uh, while you're conducting research, and then second, what you do with the collected material and how you're gonna represent, how you're gonna write for the larger audience. I think there are two responsibilities come with that. And um, as I said, for the first one, ethnography gives me a tool to actually do justice to the community lives, communal lives. It's, I find it as the most useful uh, method to engage with the community and then hear them and then prioritize whatever they are demanding, whatever they are asking, and then work with that kind of material. Writing itself, I have been writing in two languages, English and Turkish, because I always share whatever I write with the people who help me to do this research. I think it is. I see it as a part of my ethical responsibility and get feedback from them how they respond to the ways that I'm writing. And I also integrate that kind of writing in my uh, work. Um, yeah, these are the two things that I do. That's great. Well, this was a tough question to ask for a brief response to a really huge question. Um, thank you all for your attention. You will hear from all the research associates uh, very briefly during the course information session, uh, they each are offering one course this year um, uh, that's related to their research project. So those courses really give you a chance to work with somebody in their specialty, in their direct research area. Um, join me in welcoming our research associates.